This episode of The Paceline is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, so you deserve lower life insurance rates. Check out healthiq.com slash paceline to learn just how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now, on to the show. Getting to school. It ain't what it used to be. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up, you know, here in Southern California in San Fernando Valley in the 70s, and you either walked or biked to school. Um, I think the numbers pour that out also across the country. About 50% of us walked or biked to school back then. And, and now, what are the numbers like now? About 15% of us walk or bike to school. And one of us got an early Christmas delivery from Shimano Claus. Sitting next to me, um, you know, are all the elements uh, of a 9100 group. I've got the brifters, uh, front derailleur, rear derailleur, crank, brakes, bottom bracket, chain. Did I leave anything out? Baseline, the podcast on two wheels. Welcome to show 46. The closer we get to show 50, the more I feel compelled to tell everyone how many we have done. <laughs> uh, if you're interested in some uh, binge podcasting, the complete Paceline series can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, and the home of the Paceline, of course, redkiteprayer.com. And one thing you will notice if you go back and listen to those shows is that more than once, I have failed to introduce myself. So let's get that out of the way right now. (laughs) I am Michael Houghton, the host of this mess. I'm not kidding, guys. There have been shows where I've failed to say who I am. (laughs) Like, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't, but... I'm just facilitating. You know, if WordPress didn't automatically byline my pieces... I, I'm willing to bet that about 20% of the time I wouldn't bother to sign my name. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, we're unwilling to take credit, aren't we? Yeah. We are so humble. Oh, I'm willing to take credit. <laughs> I haven't introduced myself as Michael Houghton, as a matter of fact. Well, uh, with me. Uh, Hi there. With me is the, the newest addition to the RKP Empire, and that is, of course, Fat Cyclist, who we lovingly call Fatty. Or, or I like Michael to call Houghton. myself. Yeah, I like to call myself Michael Houghton. Can we call you Hottie? Is that okay? Well, it's a nickname. You know, that was a topic I've been meaning to do on this show was nicknames. Um, <laughs> and We're just going to call you people Hottie. People call me Hottie, but I don't call myself that. I mean, I get it. It's my last name, and that's how people have derived it. Uh, I came from a teammate uh, a number of years ago. He was the first to coin it, and and it caught on. And now I get it all the time. But it's it just seems odd to say, I'm Hi, hottie. I'm hottie. Well, you know, with your voice, you could pull it off. Hey there, I'm hottie. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> pornographic, Fatty. <laughs> Patrick, a year ago, it was just you and a keyboard and a blog. And look at you now. You've taken over the audio world, putting out a dominant weekly podcast. And you completed a hostile takeover of your chief competitor, FatCyclist.com, <laughs> and turned its chief operating officer into a contributor. Your resume now looks better than the president-elect's. Oh, so should God. we expect a run in 2020, Patrick Brady? 
Oh God, no, no. Uh, if anything, I'm I'm hoping to recede further into the uh, uh, wings, um, out of the floodlights. Um, I mean, I just you know I always wanted RKP to be a home to great writing and not just my work. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the site has benefited from Charles Pelkey's work, John Wilcoxon. Um, we've got a guy in New England who goes by Robot. Speaking of nicknames. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he's been, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if I'm the backbone, maybe he's the liver, um, robot, <laughs> robot has been pretty important to this. Um, and we've had a number of other, uh, contributors, uh, Rick Vosper, you know, former head of marketing for specialized. Um, he's done a lot of things in this industry. Um, so you know, uh, not to downplay how enthused I am about having uh, Fatty's work here and what it means to the site, um, but I'd like to think this is just in keeping with what I've been trying to do with the site all along, which is just make it a home to a lot of great work. Mm-hmm. And it is. Um, there's always uh, great stuff going up there. We're going to get to one of those things, one of the, your next project, or one of your next projects, I think. Fatty, <laughs> for, I want to start with you, though. Fatty, are you a campy and I'm talking about road bikes here. Are you a campy, SRAM, or Shimano guy? For road bikes, I am split evenly between SRAM and Shimano. I love them both. Um, when building out my wife's bike, and I am every bit as uh, conscientious with her uh, bike builds as I am with my own. Some might say more so. Um, I set her up with a very nice SRAM drivetrain. Uh, my own personal Madone, uh, I'm Madone, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I got Madones on the mind right now, and you'll understand why in a little, in a little bit, but uh, on my own uh, specialized road bike, I have all Shimano. Hmm. And I am mostly Shimano, some SRAM, uh, my cross bike has mm-hmm. SRAM, mountain bikes are SRAM, yeah. uh, I have very little campy in my life, um, unfortunately. I don't have any campy in my life, and not since um, not since my very first road bike, and that was about as cheap as it gets. Hmm. Which uh, gets us to the reason for the discussion, discussion. Patrick, the UPS truck brought you something pretty cool this week. Tell us what that was. New Durace! <laughs> the new Durace. The 9100 stuff. Yeah. Um, uh Last time, let's open up the boxes. You got the boxes in front of you. Let's open them uh, up. It's Christmas. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> I'm holding the right lever in my hand right now. Um, last time when they introduced nine thousand, they had all of the journalists who were getting uh, one of these groups to review uh, have a frame shipped to Irvine ahead of time. Uh, and so Seven Cycles shipped them a frame on my behalf, and it was a chance for me to review one of their frames. Um, along with uh, the new 9000. Um, this time, um, I, I was trying to work on some stuff, and it just didn't quite come together. And I said, look, uh, if you'll just ship me the group, I'll tear apart my bishop and put this on it. Um, and uh, that was kind of a big deal. I like how that bike is set up right now. Um, but I at least got them to concede the point on the cockpit. So Sitting next to me, um, you know, are all the elements uh, of a 9100 group. I've got the brifters, uh, front derailleur, rear derailleur, crank, brakes, bottom bracket, chain. Did I leave anything out? Because even if I didn't say it, it's here. Um, there are front wheels derailleur. downstairs. 
cables. Uh, yep, yep, got cables. Got cables. Yep. Um, so you're go- you have a full mechanical right grupo, right? Right. So caliper brake. I mean a rim brake, not not the not the hydro disc. Bingo. So okay. there are four different versions of this group that you can get. So there's mechanical drivetrain with uh, uh, rim brake calipers. Then there's mechanical drivetrain with hydraulic disc uh, brakes. Then there's DI2 with uh, rim brake calipers and DI2 with hydraulic disc brakes. Um, mm-hmm. And they're going to be rolled out in something approximating that order. But rim brakes and mechanical drivetrain is the first one that's fully into production and is beginning to show up at you know some select bike shops this week, uh, you know more next week and the week after. And um, a bunch of my journalist colleagues are getting these uh, these groups this week as well. Actually, I think then, Matt Phillips at Bicycling got his like a week ago. Well, <laughs> excuse us, bicycling. And then, of course, the the option on the chain set is that you can get a power meter, too. Right. And that's going to be later still is my current understanding. But, yeah, they, they are going to have uh, their own power meter. And uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and confess that I'm a little worked up about that as well. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm using uh, power in my training a lot more now, though I can't claim that I'm being super disciplined in my usage i'm just watching what it is i do when i do it um and it seems to be and the guess would be that they'll do wheels and hubs and pedals that's usually all part of the package for them too we'll probably eventually see a 9100 series for all those items as well yeah um, so they sent me some wheels i haven't really they look like the 9100 wheels that i uh previously reviewed um and there are some pedals here. Let me check. Ooh. Oh, we got pedals too. Yeah. Um, yep. These are 9,100. I don't know how they Nine. differ from the 9,000s. I really haven't even read up on these yet. Um, yeah. What I've been spending my time looking over have been really the, the brakes and the drailers. Those are the places where the changes are most obvious. Um, the lever, you know, it feels a lot like the 9,000 lever. Um it's got a really nice shape on it. Um, I don't know if the upshift paddle is any larger. It looks big holding it here in my hand. Um, but, you know, the ergonomics, like other Shimano stuff, just really dynamite. What I find really curious is that um, with the front derailleur, you know, there was a lot of criticism on the 9000 front derailleur because the parallelogram was so large. It was this, you know, ginormous yeah. thing sticking up above uh, the front derailleur. And people thought that that was kind of inelegant looking. But, you know, a longer lever, uh, you get more leverage. And so it made mm-hmm. for lighter shift action and a quicker shift. Um, this new derailleur is much smaller. And it's really kind of curious because it's got a mount for where the cable enters uh, the front derailleur. Um so, you know, you, you can run cable housing right up to the derailleur itself uh, to keep it cleaner. Um, there's a point at which the, uh, the cable enters the, uh, the front derailleur, and I have yet to really look at just how you secure it, but it's a little different. There's not uh, the traditional obvious uh, four millimeter bolt sitting off to the side. 
Um, Mm -hmm. there's a tiny little two millimeter screw that you use to, uh, I actually, I can't even tell just yet. It it either secures the cable or it adjusts cable tension. Um, but there's a, a little mark that says cable and an arrow to a two millimeter screw. Um, Well, front shifting has always been where Shimano has really kicked ass in my mind. I, I love the way the 9,000 stuff shifts. I've heard that they've somehow made 9,100 better. Like it, the front shifting is actually better. And the setup on that uh, front derailleur, Patrick, is easier. The, the 9,000 thing, you had to right. put a little plastic piece in there and determine which side the cable should run on using this weird you know, diagram yeah. and a little plastic thing that they ship. That, that supposedly, they've, they've made that a lot easier. Well, and that's the crazy thing about Shimano is that, you know, they'll... They made the improvement, so it shifted better. It was harder to set up. So what do they do next time? Uh, they make it look more elegant, and they make it easier to set up, and allegedly, it shifts better. Mm-hmm. You know, it, And it's stuff like that that makes dealing with Shimano a continued wonder. I mean, I just, I'm really impressed with these guys. They are like many very large corporations, you know, say Apple, they're complicated, you know, what they do in terms of uh, filing patents, um, just mountains and mountains and reams of patent documentation that make it really hard for other uh, component manufacturers to compete against them. I'm not always really wild about that. Um, <laughs> I'm not even remotely wild about it, actually. Um, but then when I see the work that they do on their own behalf, I'm holding this front railer and it's just, it's a gorgeous little piece of design. And then mm-hmm. uh, similarly, uh, the rear derailleur, um, you know, that, that central link of the parallelogram that you always see, you know, everybody's uh, logo emblazoned upon, uh, you know, this one doesn't say Shimano on it at all. It just says Durace, but it's much smaller. It's the shortest parallelogram that I have seen perhaps ever, given just how close these two links are to each other. This is also the first rear derailleur um, in which the cage for the jockey wheels is made from carbon fiber. Um, I like that better than Campagnolo going to uh, carbon fiber parallelogram because I had one of those explode once um, and it it, uh, not only destroyed the uh, rear derailleur, it also destroyed the wheel uh, that that was shifting a chain over and uh, the rear triangle of the bike. Um, so uh, I'm, you know, I am a campy fan, but I did have a really lousy experience with one of their rear derailleurs once. Um, mm. Anyway, this rear derailleur, um, you know, it's from a standpoint of, of uh, um, industrial design, it's, you know, it's got a really unusual bit of shaping to it. Um, I think it's really elegant. Um, and it also has the new, uh, style link that Shimano has been doing on many of their rear derailleurs, uh, where, uh, it's, it's almost got, um, a a sort of derailleur hanger, uh, you know, replaceable derailleur hanger piece to it. Um, and so I expect that this will give way before, uh, the rear derailleur does itself. Um, so I can't wait to get in the garage and start setting this up. It's, Right. It's really so cool. It's going on the Bishop. Yep. The Bishop is your one of your steel classic style bikes, right? What yeah. is what are some of the cues you're gonna look for when you test the the group set? Um well there's this there's this climb up in Armstrong Woods, uh, which is Guerneville, uh northwest of here, and there's a climb known as Bullfrog there that is just cruelly steep. 
And one of the things that came in this is there's a new cassette. Durace now has an 1130 cassette. And mm-hmm. I've got a date with that climb because I got humbled <laughs> on it once uh, with the bishop. Uh, it was so bleeding steep that at one point, and I just don't ever do this, but at one point, even though the road was paved and I had plenty of traction, I pulled over and I got off my bike. Um, yeah, I just, it, it's ridiculously steep. And, uh, so I plan to go back there and find out just how steep that thing was and hopefully pedal up the whole thing on this bike. Did they send you a, a compact chain set? Yeah. Yeah. It's 50, 30. Okay. So my low gear is going to be a 34, 30, not quite one to one, but, uh, it's, it's going to help around here. Um, you know, I can't wait to go up Pine Flat on it because Pine Flat's got an eighteen percent section in it. Um, and so they, they, the derailleur cage is a normal length derailleur cage, and it'll, it'll do a thirty, it'll do a thirty cassette. I'll wrap know, that chain around. It there. looks, it looks a little longer than your standard. Okay. Okay. Um, it's not as short as you know when you think back on, uh, you know, Durace from like the nine speed era or the eight speed era. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly those two pulleys were closer together. Um, but this, it doesn't look, you know, huge like an old touring uh, derailleur. Um, right. Cool. Yeah. It's really Well, stuff. so looking forward to, to your impressions on, on this group set. And, uh, you know, like a lot of things with Shimano and any great company, uh, what we what we should see as a trickle-down effect eventually is that, Tegra will get better. 105 will get better because they pushed the envelope again with their their top tier group in in Dury, So absolutely, um, I mean that is that is always the plan with them. That you know, I mean, there are occasions when they come out with a, a new development on the Altegra group and then it trickles upward. Um, mm-hmm. That has happened on a few occasions, but generally their biggest uh, their biggest leaps forward in terms of technology are reserved for Durace. And then, you know, you get a heavier, you know, not quite as wonderful version coming out on Altegra and then eventually 105. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I'm thinking about, you know, an 1130 cassette for people buying 105 and just what that's going to do for people. Um, oh, yeah. That's, that's going to yeah. be huge. So mm-hmm. this is pretty dynamite. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, we look forward to reading your words on uh, the new Durace and seeing some photos and uh, hearing about your exploits out on the Bishop with the new Durace group set. Santa comes early to Santa Rosa and delivers one cool grouper. All right, coming up, uh, how kids get to school, a two-continent comparison. That's next. When we design Durace, we look at it as a total system. We don't look at it as individual pieces. When you design as a system, Everything works that much better. Line, the podcast on two wheels, Fatty, Patrick Brady, both of RedKitePrayer.com, and we want to talk up our one of our new friends to this podcast, HealthIQ.com. These are the folks that are helping you out with a life insurance, and they focus on us and on the podcast, the Pace Line, that is, because we are cyclists, Patrick. These folks have a great idea 
about helping cyclists get uh, insurance and get it at a reasonable rate. Yeah, so they're doing uh, they're doing life insurance. They're helping people source life insurance um, so that they can get better quotes, uh, better rates because they're active people. Uh, and this is something that you know I didn't think about life insurance at all while I was a single man and not a parent. And then I became a parent. It's like, oh, yeah, I might ought to take care of this. And it was funny because, you know, I didn't, uh, when I did my uh, physical for my health insurance, life insurance, um, they didn't ask me anything about really how active I was. And I thought, you know, here I am, this, you know, very healthy cyclist in fantastic shape, and I'm not getting any sort of break on it. What Health IQ does is they, you know, they've entered into negotiations with a number of life insurance providers uh, to get better rates for people with a healthy, conscious lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, they're using the fact that research has shown that avid cyclists have a 45% lower cancer risk, 18% lower heart disease risk, and up to 28% lower risk of early death. And, you know, it's funny because they said to me, you know, many cyclists don't realize they can get a special rate due to their active and health conscious lifestyle. Well, yeah, now that health IQ is around, that's true. But before they came along, you couldn't do it. It just wasn't even an option. And so, you know, I'm going to be changing my uh, life insurance because of these guys. Um, So uh, they have some neat uh, quizzes and questionnaires that you can go to on their site. There's a special landing page for the Pace Line, and you'll see a link to that in our show notes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's healthiq.com forward slash paceline. Or again, go to redkiteprayer.com. You'll find the link there in our show notes. Check them out. If you ride, if you run, if you swim, if you walk, if you lift weights, any of the any or all of the above, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Healthiq.com believes that, and they're willing to go to bat for you to help you find a lower life insurance rate policies. So check them out, and we thank them for supporting the Paceline. Okay, guys, quick question here. When you were just wee lads in grammar school or even middle school, Fatty, how did you get to school? I would walk or ride my bike, riding my bike whenever it was not, uh, well, whenever it wasn't so cold that there was snow on the ground. Mm-hmm. How far did you have to travel? Oh, you know, I n- never more than a couple miles. School was always within a couple of miles. Cool. And there was never any doubt about this? Was there any argument? Did you have to no. plead or no? <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, I, I wonder if things have changed in the world, but I, I think uh, most parents were just sort of happy that their kids were out the door back then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Patrick Brady, how about you? How did you get to school when grammar school or middle school days? You know, seventh and eighth grades were the only two years that I was able to ride my bike to school. It was the only time I went to a school that was close enough that I didn't need to be driven. Um, mm. At, you know, the, the streets in my elementary school, I went to two different elementary schools. Those schools were far enough away that, you know, there was just no chance of riding there. Um, you know, the closest was maybe five miles away and the streets in between. Uh-uh. Uh, and then my high school, um, you know, was more than 30 miles away, way out uh, in the boonies of the county. And, you know, the road getting there. No, you were not going to ride a bike there. Not not if you wanted to live. And so the, really, yeah, there were only two years uh, as I was growing up where I got to my ride my bike to school and I loved it. I really love doing yeah. that. 
Yep. I, I, I rode too. I loved it. And there was never any question that I would ride or walk to school. I would be um, getting to school would be self-propelled. Do you remember uh, what bikes you were riding? It and loved. Do I remember what bikes I rode? Yeah. Absolutely. What were um, you on? Well, most vividly, I remember crashing my mother's three-speed <laughs> into a car. <laughs> In my lunchbox, flying across the road. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a Fat Albert lunchbox. I, I re- oh, God, how I remember. I was in fourth grade. I was 10 years old and smashed head-on into a car. And, oh, wow. And compacted her poor three-speed, which was actually fixed. It was a steel bike, so they were able to fix it. Wow. Um, yeah, but I continued to ride. That didn't stop the riding or the me getting to, to school on my own. Well, I got to thinking about the question of, why so few kids nowadays ride to school one day. As I rode by a local elementary here in my neighborhood, it was just before school was scheduled to start, and there was a long stretch of cars in queue waiting to pull up to the drop-off zone. Cones lined the sidewalk with signs that said, Valet. Valet? This is school, not Wolfgang Puck. Valet? They actually have valets at schools now, or at least valet signs. Where were the bikes, or how about the hoofing at the school? Not much of that going on, at least at my local school. (laughs) Uh, Go to a school, in fact, and see if you can even find a bike rack these days. At least in the L.A. area where I live, it's pretty difficult to see, you know, that rack full of bikes outside of an elementary or a middle school. This confusion and, I guess, outrage led me to Safe Routes to School. This is the organization that attempts to get schools and parents to try and find ways to get more kids to get themselves to school, or at least get themselves to school by foot or by bike. I hooked up with Jim Shanman, founder of Walk and Rollers. I love that name, Walk and Rollers. He's also the Culver City Safe Routes to School coordinator, and I talked to him about some answers to this dilemma. The reason I, I've come over to talk to you is because um, it's twofold. First of all, my buddies on the show, Patrick and Fatty, are both dads. And um, I've not asked them yet, as of this interview, how they approach letting their kids ride to school or if they would let their ride, the kids ride to school. But based on my age, your age, I remember how it was. And that was my mom, as soon as I could, said, you're getting yourself to school. There's the bike. Go ahead. You That's know where the school is. That's right. And get there. Is that the way it was for you? Absolutely. I mean, I grew up, you know, here in Southern California in San Fernando Valley in the 70s, and you either walked or biked to school. Um, I think the numbers pour that out also across the country. About 50% of us walked or biked to school back then. And, and now, what, what are the numbers like now? It's about 15% of us walk or bike to school. What happened? Well, <laughs> um, a lot of things happened. Um, in the 80s, um, Eaton Platts was uh, kidnapped, abducted, um, and became our first milk carton abducted missing child. Um, and that suddenly put missing children on the map nationally. Um, shortly after that, you had 24-7 news, thanks to cable network news. Then shortly after that, you had uh, the internet coming in about, and basically everybody knew everything. And so while there aren't more abductions happening now, now we all know about all of them. And so parents became fear-based. Um, add to that, my personal opinion is um, people started doing better. So they had cars, more people had cars, um, they wanted to use them, so they drove more often. So driving to school, in some cases, actually showing off that you've got a car, carries some weight with people. Um, 
there's a whole, there's a whole mindset that happened. An entire generation grew up being driven everywhere. And so those people are now growing up thinking that's what they need to do and they need to be more protective of their kids and that the world is a scarier place and we need to constantly be on top of our children. And so letting them walk or bike to school on their own is a fearful thing for a lot of parents. And that, that fear is based on uh, their of traffic fear or is it criminals, other human beings taking advantage of children? Well, if you ask parents, just to give you a quick answer, it'll be fear. Their general fear is that their child will be abducted. But if you actually have a deeper conversation with them and really get them to explore that a little bit more, it comes down to traffic safety. Um, there, here in Culver City, for example, when we do our surveys with the school, we find that traffic safety are the top three reasons people aren't willing to let their kids walk or bike to school more often. Um, and that's not just traffic, and there's the amount of cars, there's the speed of traffic, there's the lack of proper infrastructure, there's just too many cars, there's all that kind of gobbles together into, you know, it's a fearful, unsafe place. It's kind of ironic since one of the m- biggest reasons of child fatalities is car crashes. <laughs> so our way to protect our kids from the traffic safety is to put them in a car. There's a bad logic there. Tell us about your personal uh, experience as a father. How do you approach the topic of your child getting to school? That, you know, that's a great question. And you know, I have to admit, I actually struggled with it for a little while. Now, my daughter's 13 now, so she's in eighth grade, and she does bike to school most days. And in elementary school, we only lived about three blocks from school, so it was pretty easy for us to walk every single day. And I got to tell you, I love that aspect, because on the way home, you're, she's downloading, and it's really exciting, it's really comforting. But all of a sudden, in third grade, she wanted to walk on her own. And I had to, like, decide, okay, it's three blocks. She has one little street to cross. Okay, wait a minute. And I had to think about this. Is she ready to do this? Am I ready to do this? And we trained all through third grade. We practiced crossing streets properly. And in fourth grade, I'd walk her to the end of the block, watch her cross the street, and then she'd walk the rest of the way on her own. And by fifth grade, she was on her own. But there was this whole psychological adjustment that I had to make. And I was surprised because here I am advocating that everybody should do this. And I'm wrestling with it a little bit. And I came to realize there's a lot of things that go on there. One is a maturation process on our own. We have to grow into this. And two, there's a big social connectivity that parents do when they bring their kids to school. They're not driving and dropping their kids. They're walking them or they're walking them into school. And parents connect there. And there's a social network that develops there. And that's not an easy thing to let go of or a desirable thing to let go of. And so as a parent, you find yourself starting to step back a little bit. And you realize that once you step back and you let them be independent, that's the steps into the future because it just gets more independent after that. And as a parent, you see that kind of drift away. And no parent wants that. We all want to be with our kids forever. But it's unrealistic. They're going to get married. They're going to have kids. They're going to have to go to college, et cetera. So when do you start that process of letting go? For us, it was in fourth grade. For some parents, that's a challenge. Now, you see a, a wide part of this county, and there are parts of L.A. County that are rural yeah. and less populated. Sure. There's less traffic density. Does it change at all? Do you see more kids riding or walking into school in the areas with less traffic? Well, not so much with less traffic, because when there's less traffic and they're further apart from their school, they're more likely to drive because of the distance. That becomes a, a bigger factor, or maybe weather, or maybe the working conditions for the parents. We do see in the inner city areas where kids are, the numbers of kids walking to school is quite high because they have no choice. Their parents might have to, both parents might be working and they might go to work early or they might not have a car. Um, And so you see higher numbers, maybe 60, 70% of a school population, maybe even higher, that are walking out of necessity. But are they walking safely? Are they walking together as a group? Are they learning best practices? Probably not. 
So what, what do you try and do? Uh, how are you, first of all, called into a situation? <laughs> and then what do you try and do? That's a great question. So we get called into situations in a couple of ways. If we're fortunate enough to get some uh, government, not government grants, but if we get foundational grants, for example, we will cold call schools and find schools that are willing to participate in some of our programming, which is great because now there's a desire and we've been brought in. Um, often uh, cities uh, will, will um, respond to the government's call for projects and will apply for funding, um, safe routes to school funding specifically. And when a city is awarded such a project, then we go after the contract. So we compete openly in an RFP process, and hopefully we win that project or we're a partner on a project. So we get called in, we are hired by a city to effectively develop a program. Um, that's what's happened here in Culver City. We've worked in Pico Rivera as well in a similar situation. Um, and the whole idea is the city is now funded to do this. So we are the consultants that are brought in. We're the knights in white on white horses, if you will. Um, so the process starts um, with superintendents down to principals and then down to parents. So we get permission to be on the campus. We get permission to reach out to the parents. And we look to build some kind of a community. Um, often that's going to their community events and having conversations. Sometimes it's just gathering people around a cause. Maybe they've had a traffic collision there or their, their accident rate is high. Um, and so there is something to rally around. So it depends on the school and depends on the area. Um, and then based on the input that we receive from those schools and from those parents, um, we will craft a program that seems appropriate for them, which could be a meet-up site and people gathering at one corner and then walking to school together as a group. It could be a walking school bus where you start at one end, maybe with five kids, and by the time you get to school, others have joined in. It could be just a couple of days celebrating the efforts of kids walking biking to school. So it depends on what that school can actually handle. What, what are some of the key things that you see work often in these situations? Um, we find that just celebrating with like International Walk to School Day, for example, is a great rallying cry. Those are a lot of fun. They're easy to do for schools, and it's an easy thing for them to promote and for the kids to get involved with. So that's a great way for schools to start. Um, Meetup sites where kids are already walking or parents want to be able to join in and they can maybe even drop their kids off because other parents are there, that's like the second next, next best thing to do. Um, bicycle and safety community events are really popular. Um, we, we do them throughout the year. Um, we've got like four coming up as it is. So we might go to a school after school. We might do a weekend event. And this is getting kids on bikes and showing them how to do it safely. So when they are riding out there and their parents aren't around, they at least have a base knowledge of what they're supposed to do out there. Uh, one thing I haven't heard you say yet is um, infrastructure. You don't seem to be taking the road. That, well, the first thing we do is go to uh, City Hall and tell them they need to build more bike lanes. Is that part of the process or not? Uh, not directly for us. We work on the education and encouragement primarily. So um, Safe Routes to School is built on five E's, education, encouragement, uh, enforcement, evaluation, um, and uh oh, now I've gotten the fifth E. Um, uh, oh, uh, did, did I say... Uh, wait, I, said, I said enforcement. Did I say um, infrastructure? So uh, no. okay, so that would be the, the engineering component. That's where it was. I was, I was focused on the the infrastructure component. So that's the one E we don't really focus on. We advocate for it. We certainly want that to happen. And part of some of the program we do includes what's called a walk audit. So we'll gather community members and stakeholders together, and we'll literally walk within like a five block radius around the school and note everything. You know, where are the good crossings? Where are the bad crossings? What are the sidewalks like? Are there sidewalks? Do you need a signal, a stop sign, a crosswalk? What have you? And we can put together a report, and then we can turn that over to the city and go okay, here's your blueprint. Go find the funding, get that infrastructure done. Um, Safe Routes to School funding is usually based on two kind of components, or at least it used to be. There was state-level infrastructure-based, um, and a slight 10% of that would be used for non-infrastructure, the education and encouragement part. Um, and then there's the 
federal programming, which was the infrastructure base. So that was 100% for non-infrastructure programming, like what we do. So um, depending on what kind of grant the city got after, they might be focused on doing street improvements or they might be focused on the education. We like to think they should be both. <laughs> um, now the funding is wrapped up into the, into the transportation, and so it's kind of a little bit of a muddy mess right now, but we're working through that. What signs are you seeing of, of, of things making progress here? Are we doing better? We are doing better, but it's incremental. Um, you know, I'd like to think that our programs go into schools and all of a sudden they go from 20% participation to 70% participation. Those are rare. Um, what we do see is the awareness grows. We do see kids getting safer out there. We do see parents realizing, okay, I get how this works. I still don't want to do it, but I get it at least. Um, we're in the, using again Culver City as an example, we're in the fourth year of a program. We're just now starting to tip over that, that edge of, okay, we, we can participate. There's been a number of factors for that, but we're seeing the numbers going up, and that's really exciting. That's taken three years. And is that all going back to getting that fear factor down? Is that the core thing here? We kind of come back, we can't really combat the fear factor. You know, you can't go into a parent's room or a house and try to explain to them that they shouldn't be afraid of things. Um, if they feel that the streets aren't safe, then in their world, the streets aren't safe. If they feel that their kids are going to be abducted, that's a real fear, and you have to recognize that. So you try to do everything you can to educate people to, and kind of bring them along slowly. So if you bring um, the tools out there and they realize, okay, now my kids know how to cross the streets because they've gone through three years of programming in our PE classes, for example, or they've been to enough bike safety festivals, I see they can handle this really well. That builds confidence with parents. And with confidence comes that ability to say, I think I'll let go just a little bit. Um, the way we explain it to parents is by, you know, elementary school, that's when we train them. We teach them everything we can. They should be walking with their kids. We don't advocate for second graders to walk a half a mile on their own. That's, that's a non-starter right there. Um, but we spend five or six years with them in, in elementary school. By the time they get to middle school, it should be a viable option. The parents have had opportunities to ease into that notion of, I can let my kids do this. They, they, they know how to do it. I've seen them do it. I feel a little bit more comfortable about it. By the time they get to high school, this should be a no-brainer. Because, um, you know, the way we talk with parents is by the time they're going to get to college, you're not going to be there. You're not going to hold their hands or drive them from dorm room to dorm room. So, you know, you better start training them now because it takes years for them to understand this. Yeah. Is it reasonable to expect that we could reach 50% again? Um, I'm, a, I'm a real positive guy. So, sure. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what it would take to get there. Um, we need, I mean, we're talking about systemic change here, right? So um, can we overcome enough fears to bring that, those numbers there? I'd sure like to think so. Maybe in my daughter's world. Um, this is where the transportation in general really comes into play. More bike lanes, more trains, more busways. That all provides options for people, right? And so if biking is a viable option and we make that con those connectivities happen, then... Um, you know, eventually we might get back to those numbers. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the pace line. We appreciate your input and continued success. And we're rooting for 50% here on the pace. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate the time. <laughs> Again, that was Jim Shanman, founder of Walk and Rollers. And he's a, a local Safe Routes to School coordinator here in the uh, L.A. area. Uh, Safe Routes to School works on a kind of a national state, then local level. That's kind of the, the uh, how they're set up. Uh, I think you heard Jim talk about the, you know, the impediments to getting kids to walk or to ride to school. There's there's a fear factor times too. I mean, there's a there's legitimate fear for the safety of kids, whether it be abduction or getting hit by a car 
Well, and there's also fear on the parents' part of, of letting go, of, of allowing their kids some independence. Those are the main impediments um, for why so few kids currently walk or ride to school. So here's my second question for you guys. We started with, of course, how you guys got to school now. You're both fathers, as I talked about in the, in the, in the interview with Jim there. Let's start with you, Fatty. Uh, your father... Uh, how do you deal with your kids getting to school? Well, um, for my for my children who are still home, and there are two of them, and uh, so my my twin my twin fifteen year old girls, they usually ride the bus to school. Um, however, uh, when the weather is nice, um, you know, up until it, say a month and a half ago, they would sometimes walk to school or sometimes ride their bikes. Uh, that's because they are now at a middle school where it is a little bit further away. Um, in when they were in elementary school, it was they walked uh, or rode their bikes every single day. Was there so, any? Did, did you face any of the issues that we, we discussed in the interview? There was there a fear not, of letting go? Was there not a fear a one for safety them. there? <laughs> really? No, I guess I, I guess maybe I inherited my my parents. Uh, uh, you know, cheerful negligence. I don't know if that's a, a good word for it, but um, I, we really uh, we, we really live in what you might call one of the safest neighborhoods in America. It's uh, very uh, it's near rural. There are horses and deer in the neighbor in the neighbors' lots, and it is a very small community. And the distance to school in uh, is very you know is very short, you know, less than a mile even now. Uh, in a couple of years, when my girls are in high school, I'd be actually a little more concerned because there is a, um, there are some major intersections and a highway crossing. And at that point, riding their bike to school, I would be a little more concerned. But by then, they're just going to want to drive anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> Right. Patrick, the boys are still quite young, but uh, I I know a school is at least part of one of their their lives already. Mm -hmm. um, you must be starting to think about this issue. Um, so, uh, most mornings I take Philip to first grade, uh, either by tandem or cargo bike. We have not been riding his bike lately, but we've done that as well. Um, he's kind of slow to get ready in the morning and so usually we're a little more pressed for time and uh it takes him longer to ride his bike to school than it does for me to just kind of deliver him but yeah we uh the distance to school is a is just over a mile and uh you know we're in a nice residential neighborhood and so getting him to school is really no problem he likes riding his bike um lots of kids ride their bikes to that school. There is a cage uh, that they lock up after all the kids are in school and that keeps the bikes safe. I mean, we've brought a lock anyway, but it's really not even necessary. But there are a number of kids who ride their bikes to his school. Uh, Matthew, who's only three, uh, on mornings that I have to deliver both kids, um, you know, I can use a cargo bike and uh, it's got a baby seat on the back that he sits in. And, um, so I can, I can drop Philip off at first grade, then take him to his daycare and head home afterward. Of course, there's, there's going to come a time when Philip mm -hmm. is going to say, dad, I think I can do this on my own. And you're going to 
Do what? Uh, say yes, provided he's in third grade. There's actually a rule at his school that you cannot allow a child to ride to school by him or herself until third grade. Um, when he was in kindergarten and he was still at that school, I had to go and ask permission to make sure that it was okay for me to ride with him to school. And they were like, yeah, just, you know, so long as you're not letting him ride by himself, um, you know, we just don't allow that until third grade. So third grade, he's going to start riding by himself to school. Yeah. I think both you as dads are, are in uh, fortunate positions. I mean, Santa Rosa is a great community for cycling. They embrace it. Fatty, obviously, you have, live in a very safe area. L.A. and, in fact, my immediate neighborhood is a nice neighborhood. And if, you know, if a kid lives within this neighborhood, there should be no reason why they can't get themselves to school, provided you know, they have the skills to do so. They understand direction. They understand that they shouldn't talk to strangers. Um, but a lot of what goes on in L.A. and other met, uh, metro areas is you have uh, magnet schools and kids crossing town to get to school. Um, that becomes an issue, obviously, trying to see them or help them get to school on their own. I, I, I get that. Mm. Um, and I do get – I mean, I'm not a parent. I, I can't totally you know, understand everything that a parent goes through regarding the fear factor and fear of safety. But I know as a, a member of the media that has grown over the years that parents are much more reluctant to let their kids out on their own as we did when we were youngsters. Because when we were youngsters, it was boom, there's your bike, go for it. Get yourself <laughs> to baseball practice, to school, to the store, to fishing, to what have you. That has all changed. In, in in many areas across this country, and I get it. And that's why we've gone from 50% of kids riding or walking to school to 15%. You know, honestly, uh, I was encouraged when I heard it was 15% because it seems like it's even yeah. lower. Uh, you know, yeah. at least we've got something to build upon still. Yeah, yeah. If you care about this issue, as you heard Jim talk about, you know, they are reliant upon federal and state funding. And that means with a new administration, there's going to be a new secretary of transportation. Um, there's been some changeover in Congress that uh, Safe Routes to School uh, is has tapped into. And they, you know, there are some new players on some of the transportation committees. You just need to let your local representatives know that this is an issue for you, that you care about this issue because they are they are reliant upon federal and state governments, helping them out and helping them with this dilemma, getting kids to school. Okay, Fatty, uh, you have been working uh, with World Bicycle Relief, and they are trying to solve the issue of getting kids to school. But in this case, uh, no valets are involved. No, no. In a lot of ways, it's almost the exact opposite problem. Uh, these are uh, schoolgirls in Africa, in particular um, in uh, places like Zambia, Tanzania, uh, that would love to ride a bike to school. And it's important that they're able to ride their bikes to school because otherwise they actually run out of hours in the day that they uh, doing things that they need just to survive. And school winds up being what gets cut. Um, when it takes uh, a couple of hours to walk to school because it is so far, and of course a car is out of the question, and you also have to go get water, and you also have to grind corn, and you also have to feed the chickens, and you also have to do other chores, getting to school and back 
you know, that that's that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And a lot of girls in particular leave school early. And World Bicycle Relief for the past several years has built really sturdy, you know, practically bomb-proof, single-speed coaster brake bikes that when given to schools selected by the community or when the bikes are given to girls who have been selected by the community, the girls that live furthest away from the schools and are in the greatest need, it makes it possible for them to get to school, get water faster, do other things, get to town when they need to, and basically have greater options once they graduate from school because they have a greater radius of job accessibility. And their lives really change for the cost of a $147, very sturdy, single-speed coaster brake bike. Um, As you can tell, I'm a big fan. I've actually visited Zambia and seen this program in action. And uh, a couple of days ago, I had, uh, I heard, rather, that uh, pro triathlete and Ironman former champion Jordan Rapp is also a huge fundraiser for World Bicycle Relief. He just crossed the $500,000 threshold of money that he has raised for WBR. And I talked with him and uh, WBR Development Director Katie Bowling about how he's done it. Today I'm talking with Katie Bowling of World Bicycle Relief and Jordan Rapp, who is a pro triathlete. Jordan and Katie, thanks so much for joining. Katie, I want to ask you, first of all, a little bit about World Bicycle Relief. Um, Give us a little bit of background about what it is. World Bicycle Relief is a nonprofit, and we distribute bicycles in the rural areas of the world where Distance is a significant barrier to some basic needs such as education, healthcare, job opportunity. And we we distribute new, reliable, culturally appropriate bicycles. We call them Buffalo bicycles, and it costs us $147 to get one into the hands of a recipient. And to date, over the past 11 years, we've distributed pro- approximately 320,000 bicycles and trained over 1,000 field mechanics. Jordan, you've been supporting WBR for quite a while uh, as well, and just recently crossed the threshold of $500,000, which is pretty remarkable. How, how have you done that? Through the help of a lot of other generous people. Um, basically, I go and hit up my sponsors for some awesome prizes, and then I hit up the triathlon community, uh, and then sort of just play matchmaker and then, uh, and reap the rewards of that. But, uh, I think one of the things that I think was a, a little, I had a, I wasn't sure when I first started, you know, how to approach it. I think you see a lot of fundraisers and things like that, that are sort of, you know, please chip in 15, $20. And mm-hmm. I sort of thought, well, I don't have a huge network, but triathletes are generally pretty affluent. So I'll just basically ask for donations in bicycle increments. And I think that's a, like I had been reading some of uh, Malcolm Gladwell and sort of talked about anchoring, but I figured if I told people, you know, sort of, I'm asking for 135, like as the minimum, that that would sort of reframe their reference uh, point. Whereas if I just sort of asked people for a donation, you know, they might donate, you know, 25 bucks or 50 bucks. But I, I think for a lot of triathletes, probably the difference between, say, 25 or $50 and 135 or 147 was not significant. And so I sort of rolled the dice a little bit that first year, I think, on asking for for that. What I mean, I think in, in retrospect, it was probably a, 
it seemed like kind of a large donation, but it's actually worked out really well. And, you know, I've had people that have, have pledged to say that, you know, every year that you do this, I'll add another bike and, you know, who mm. have sort of then continued to do that. And I think people now sort of accept thinking in this increment of a single bicycle as being pretty normal. Um, and mm. I think that's really been a, that's, I think the main thing that has allowed me to, with, I think a relatively small group of people, I mean, typically I have about a hundred to 125 people that will donate in a year to, you know, in some years, the best year to, to raise over a hundred thousand dollars. And then, you know, typically most years it's been sort of in the 70 to $80,000 range, but I think yeah. it's mostly just because I've been able to ask people for big donations. Why did you choose to make fundraising for a cause a big part of what you do? And why did you pick WBR? Well, that sort of happened at the same time. Like I had, I had won my first Ironman in 2009, Ironman Canada, and I was scheduled mm -hmm. to race again at the end of the year. And it was sort of like one of those things where you set a big goal and then you achieve it. And then you, and you sort of <laughs> expect that it's going to change your life. But of course it's triathlon. So it doesn't really change your life. Uh, you know, it's not say, you know, like winning the masters or something like that. You know, I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. I'm glad that I did it, but you know, I still, it wasn't like I had all of a sudden paid for, you know, paid down my mortgage and, you know, guaranteed that when I had kids, I was going to be able to put them through college. So it was, you know, I had to get back to racing, but right. I sort of didn't know what was next. And I was at Interbike, uh, and I have been sponsored by SRAM for a long time. And they said, you know, would you do an autograph signing uh, for our charity arm, World Bicycle Relief, you know, at Interbike? And I said, you know, I was going to be there anyway. And I said, sure. I was like, you do realize that this is Interbike. And it's like mm -hmm. the only people that, <laughs> you know, where there's like a line for their autographs is Eddie Merckx and Lance Armstrong. Uh, so in the hour that I had to sign autographs, I had one person come and it was because I had a friend who was at Interbike and I said, please come <laughs> so that I don't have nobody come. Right. Uh, so I basically had 59 minutes uh, to learn about World Bicycle Relief. And I thought this is this is a fantastic charity. You know, um, I really like the message here for me. Uh, I'm an engineer by training. I sort of like I really am drawn to the the concrete nature of it. I like that aspect of it, that $147 buys a single bicycle, which then ends up in someone's hands. You know, I think there's, there are a lot of other great charity efforts. I think, you know, sure. Um, one of the ones that I highlight as being sort of, you know, I think what most people think about, of course, is like American Cancer Society or something like that. And I think there you would think, okay, you're going to donate, but what does it actually do? And I'm glad people donate because I think it's hugely important. But for me, I really like the sense of knowing sort of, you know, this is how you get from A to B. Um, and I felt, I felt good about being associated with that for myself. That really resonated with me in a way that no other charitable organization ever had. And I think that's where I thought, you know what, like, I'd like to do something here. I'd like to do something very concrete. And so I said, you know, I'm doing another race. Maybe I could raise enough money to buy a hundred bikes. And I liked it again, you know, I could say a hundred bikes is, at that time, I think it was $13,500 or so. Um, and I ended up doing almost double that. And I thought, wow, you know, that was pretty, pretty awesome. And, you know, I, I really just everything about it really resonated with me. And then I did it another year and then just sort of became a thing. And this is now the eighth year doing it. And now it's just what I do at the end of the year. Where can people go to learn about the prizes that they can win uh, if they donate it to uh, in your fundraiser. Uh, we I we host the sort of informational stuff on Slow Twitch, uh, where I uh, I 
I'm uh, the chief technology officer there. So do some writing and, and Dan Enfield, our founder is nice enough to sort of let me reach out to our, our pretty big audience. Um, so it will be on, uh, on there under features. You can also find if you want just sort of a, there is a bit more news on slow twitch. So it'll take a little bit of digging to find it. But if you go to my Facebook page, which is just facebook.com forward slash rapstar.racing, or if you mm-hmm. go to my Twitter feed, which is just twitter.com, uh, you know, uh, forward slash rapstar R A P P S T A R. Um, it's the pin tweet, uh, is a link to the page on slow twitch. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, you can go and if you just search on Slow Twitch for World Bicycle Relief, you'll, you'll certainly find it as well. So it's pretty easy. And Katie, let me ask you, how many bikes are you hoping to give to people in Africa in 2000, uh, by the end of 2016? What is your objective? We are validating what we're doing through rigorous M&E and measurement and evaluation and really believe that within the next few years, we'll reach a milestone with over 1 million bicycles distributed. So all the work that, you know, Jordan is putting into his fundraising campaign and Eldon that you put in t- towards towards yours, you're the baseline for sharing our message to ensure that we reach this tipping point, you know, mentioning um, Malcolm Gladwell, where, where transportation is really being addressed in rural parts of the world. So I, I want you to both know and for your communities know that you're so important to our organization and that you're really creating this tremendous impact. Well, thank you for the work that you do, Katie. And one tri-related question for you, uh, Jordan, what do you have coming up in 2017? What's your big target for the year? My big target uh, will be Ironman Lake Placid in July. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, you know, it's that race has as uh, the last year, it was a women's uh, sort of champion, uh, sort of championship type race where they had only a women's pro field. But then this year, they're going to have only a men's pro field. And it's sort of one of those races. I'm from New York originally. So um, it's been on my list to do for a while and sort of has never worked out. But this year, I am I'm making that my priority for the season. All right. Well, good luck with that. We'll be watching for that. And thank you both for being on the pace line. Again, that was Katie Bowling, Development Director of World Bicycle Relief, and Jordan Rapp, a pro triathlete and current WBR supporter. Fatty, thanks for that. You guys are uh, doing uh, really great. I mean, we think we have problems here getting our kids to school. How about just barely being able to make it to school? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the bike really it gives them more than just a way to get there, but it also provides a lot of safety. I'm not going to get into the... Uh, into details on in it but right now but just being able to get uh from point a to b a little bit faster uh gives the the girls in who are going to school a much better chance of not encountering danger and you know and that's a big thing now all of that said a kind I, i'm not going to i don't want to throw jordan under the bus too badly here but uh, while I think it is super awesome what he's doing, and you definitely got to go and check out the prizes he has in his fundraiser, we are competing with him. <laughs> so uh, Red Kite Prayer, Friends of Fatty have been uh, have been doing fundraising at the same time. This month, right now, whether, no matter who you donate to with World Bicycle Relief, your dollars are getting matched. So you know, there's a lot of us who are you know doing a lot of our end of year fundraising right now. And if you go to bit.ly, B-I-T, you know, bit.ly slash WBR2016, you'll see our fundraiser. 
And here's the thing. We are currently at $962,000. That's right. We are $38,000 away from a million dollars. And no one has ever done that with World Bicycle Relief, at least as, you know, small single proprietor uh, type of fundraisers. So we have some pretty amazing prizes that we've already talked about. And right now I wanted to announce, and this sounds kind of like I'm doing, uh, you know, an NPR fundraiser, I know, but, and we kind of are in a way, but this is for an amazing cause. We have a Madone 9 series frame set. That's a value of $4,500 that we are going to build up with Zip 454 NSW wheels. Those are That's a $4,000 set of wheels and SRAM ETAP drivetrain. And then finish it off with your pick of top-of-the-line SRAM and Zip components as you like. If you donate, we're going to choose at random someone in sort of a, a sort of a raffle style drawing, and there all of the all of the rules are in uh, are linked to from the bit.ly slash WBR2016 link that I was talking about. But we are trying to get to a million dollars, and if we do that. I have another huge prize that uh, I'm going to announce, but this is a big prize in addition to the Kuat rack and the Silka uh, Ultimate Pump, custom for uh, WBR. It's you know a pretty amazing set of prizes that we have to help raise money for a pretty amazing cause. What will a million dollars mean to WBR? Well, that would mean about 6,800 bicycles is what that means. And each bicycle is used by more than one person. So it's not like we're just affecting 6,800 people. We're, each bicycle is used and affects you know, between three and five people. So we're talking like 20,000 people, a whole village worth of people who are going to have their lives drastically improved. This isn't something where it's just you know, raising awareness. These are, you know, physical objects that immediately transform someone's life, right? Okay, so where where do people go if they if they're motivated to do something now? Go to bit.ly bit dot L Y slash W B R two thousand sixteen. And then they can do their donation there and they'll find your name or your fundraising effort there. That is, that takes you right to my fundraising page and make a donation there. You'll see uh, the number jump up as you donate your dollars and you're automatically entered into the contest when you donate. And, you know, my fingers are crossed for you. I hope you win that amazing Madone 9 frame set with the Zip 454 NSW wheels. I know that I, I know that anyone who rides road seriously, you know, you're drooling right now. This is an outrageous bike. We're talking about a twelve, fourteen thousand $14,000 bike. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't uh, even have a bike that costs that much. No, right. nor do I. I. Three bikes that add up to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, folks. Uh, uh, here's here's your chance. I, I've we've all seen a lot of frustration and anger and moaning and groaning on Facebook and so on and so forth, and we all know why. Here's a chance to redirect some of that energy into something cool and something positive, and you will have a direct impact on some young woman's life far away that will go a long ways towards them having a better life. 
Yep. Head over to the link. We're going to have it on uh, RayKaiPair.com in case you forgot what Fatty just told you. It'll be up on RKP in our show notes. Check out that link. Um, do something cool uh, on a global level. Uh, you really will be helping somebody directly in this case. All right, coming up next are Pace Line Picks. Many developing communities in sub-Saharan Africa battle poverty and disease on a daily basis. Walking is often the only form of transportation available in these communities. This lack of transportation prevents access to health care, economic development and education. Owning a bicycle, however, empowers people to develop community assets and provides access to independence and livelihood. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Uh, we are running against the clock here, and it is ticking fast. Uh, we try to keep the show t- as tight as possible, not not burn you out too much. No, no two-hour shows on the Pace Line. We, we have our limitations. So let's go right to Pace Line Picks. Fatty, what do you have this week? All right. Well, uh, one of the things that I've noticed happens a lot is when I get to know someone's material, I become a fan. So ever since I've seen uh, Ryan Cleek's Reach for the Sky documentary, uh, I have become a fan of his work. And he has a new project out called BikeBlotter.com. And it is art prints, posters, and t-shirts featuring some amazing bike-related photography. Uh, Check it out bikeblotter.com if there is someone in your life that maybe appreciates interesting kind of pop style art uh, and bikes I think you might find something that might make a nice gift for them or for yourself mm-hmm. okay cool and mine is got an art twist to it too because it involves a film a documentary uh, riding down the Stelvio Pass in Italy it requires of course a certain amount of concentration and nerve There are 48 hairpin turns. Now, imagine doing it at night, now, with no brakes, and for a final challenge, take off your handlebars. So, going down the Stelvio, at night, no brakes, no bars. 77-year-old extreme cycling legend Giuliano Giuliano Calore uh, has done this. (laughs) Amazing. He completed the descent at night, no-handed, no breaks, and he turned the whole thing into a documentary film. Uh, Caloria, actually, he holds several uh, Guinness World Records for his cycling <laughs> feats, uh, which he has been uh, regularly undertaking over many decades. There's video footage of his no-handed descent of the Stelvio in 1986. That's been a YouTube uh, sensation for years. Prior to that, he rode up the Stelvio without touching his bars. He's also ridden up the Stelvio playing four different musical instruments, again, without handlebars. And later, he rode up the same climb using just his right leg. Uh, the trailer for the film gives a glimpse into the nighttime, no-handed, no-brink Stelvio descent and shows that all did not run smoothly. Uh, Calori crashed into a wall at low speed as he practiced. Here's a little snippet of that trailer, by the way. Allora, dobbiamo pensare che con una piccola lucetta 
Io inquadro a pochi metri la cupola. My Italian not so great, but I imagine he is gloating about his magnificent descent of the Stelvio at night. No hands, no brakes. Congrats to him. A little documentary coming out, and you can catch the trailer just about anywhere. All right, Patrick, what do you have? Uh, Well, something we've been waiting for here in Santa Rosa, uh, waiting uh, since like August when I first heard about it off the record, uh, the brand new Trail House. This is a new bike shop, a joint production uh, by the owners of NorCal Bike Sport and the Bike Peddler. It's all the same group of owners, actually. But Mm -hmm. uh, the Trail House is a different sort of bike shop. Uh, It has beer. It has coffee. (laughs) It has food. Uh, They don't sell bikes. They sell food. Beer, coffee, bike stuff. Uh, they have a service department where you can get your bike worked on. Um, but they have beer. They have Pliny the Elder. They have four taps devoted to Russian River Brewing Company beers. Um, there's a new post up on RKP uh, about it. And uh, it's one of those things that has made uh, it just in a single day that it's been open. It's made a, a great cycling destination just that much better. Uh, the trail house is uh, just outside the confines of Anadol State Park. So people can park nearby, go for a ride, come back and, uh, you know, fuel up post ride. You can you can get your coffee on prior to your ride and then beer up afterward. So pretty cool new thing. Uh, I saw lots of uh, regional cycling royalty uh, when I was in there yesterday. Ted King drove up from Marin County. Um I saw uh, some bike monkey folk and a bunch of other local riding friends. So it's off to a pretty cool start. I'm so I'm pretty psyched about this. And it's about 100 yards from my home. Yeah. Bike shops need to think about new ways to use their space. And what the hell? Beer and coffee and a gathering spot and some service. You know, might be uh, might be the key to think. Can't just sell bikes forever. I think uh, that 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 way is is slowly but surely suffering and maybe even dying. So hats off to them for an interesting place to, to hang out. Uh, that's another edition of The Pace Line in the books. Patrick, as the, the boss of this empire, any parting shots? Uh, got some cool new posts coming up. Um, uh, there's uh, some, some uh, apparel stuff. And also a little shout out to the uh, Grasshopper Adventure Series all of old Kaz is sold out. If people want to do that, they have to buy the year-long pass now. And I would encourage folks to consider it. You should make regular trips up here and uh, go for uh, Miguel Crawford's series. Um, this is this is as much fun as bike racing can get. And uh, right. there's still an opportunity, but it's going to close. Check out the pace line on Red Kite Prayer. Uh, links and notes pertaining to the show are there along with a place to comment on this show or any of our shows in fact the whole series is there all 46 of them if you want to do a little binge podcasting the pace line can also be found on itunes stitcher google music subscribe and rate us please helps a lot if you do okay time to clip in go for a ride be good to each other and we will talk to you soon on the pace line (laughs) 